Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. So greetings, as Pete said, I am coming to you from Portland, Oregon, uh, from a church called Imago Day, and I am their pastor overseeing things, spiritual formation, as well as global outreach and prayer. And um, Rick McKinley sends his hellos. I was hired at Imago Day on election night, 2016. I was watching the election results and then I got a phone call from Bill Clem and said, yeah, we want you to be a part of our team. And then the very next day, Rick McKinley sent me a text that said, yeah, I'm really sorry you're having to come in the middle of all this. (laughs) I was like, welcome. (laughs) So we're here today to continue your series called First Allegiance. Paraphrasing uh, Pete, it's an initiative that will hopefully give you as a congregation of Christians a way to uh, keep from falling into the traps of cultural and political polarization and divisiveness. Things are a bit of a mess right now, aren't they? Um, But we are first, last, and always kingdom citizens. We are shaped and defined and identified not by a party or agendas, but by our creator. And we pledge our allegiance not to a flag, but to Christ. We put our faith not in the promises of politicians or systems of government or our own personal resources, but we put it in the gospel and in the hope of the new creation. And just FYI, you guys are crushing it with this series. You're giving me hope because when I think about how the church was four years ago when I first started at Imago and all the things that were going back and forth and all the anger and all the tears and all the hurt. It was difficult to actually see that and continue to be hopeful. But the conversations in churches sound different now. They sound a little bit more balanced. They sound a little bit more caring. They sound much more hopeful. They sound a lot more godly and a lot more gospel shaped. So I'm here today to talk to you about biblical justice, and hopefully I'll get you to the place where you'll appreciate the fullness of what's expected of you when you say in your pledge, I commit to understanding and pursuing justice as I engage in civic life, not minimizing scripture's repeated call to seek justice and allowing scripture to critique popular conceptions of justice in our culture. Now, my first job in ministry, I remember um, I was a singles pastor at a church in Orange County, and the very first week that I showed up at work, we were having a meal together, and somebody said to me, so, Pastor Jones, welcome to New Song Community Church. So, let me ask you a question. Is affirmative action fair? No kidding. First question I got asked at church was, is affirmative action fair? And I said, no, no, it's not. And he turned to his friends and he said, see, I told you, not fair. I said, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus dying on a cross fair? I mean, he was innocent. 
He'd done no wrong. Was that fair? And he thought about it. I said, this is not a trick question. And he said, no, it's not fair. I said, you're right. It's not fair. Because we don't serve a fair God. We serve a just God. Because if God was a fair God, we'd all be toast and he'd be starting over on his creation. And so I told him, you don't have a problem taking, taking advantage of the grace that was offered through that act of justice on God's part, right? And he said, no. Because the important thing that we have to remember that justice is not about fairness, as many think it is. It's not about payback. And it's not about rights, because rights are about entitlements. And while our country is based on the Bill of Rights and the rights that we have as individuals, God is not a God that says you have rights because then you can demand of God that he do what he needs to do. You can demand that God do what's right because you are entitled to it, and we're not. We have a God who is just and a God who pours out grace on us. I think it would be interesting if instead of the Bill of Rights, we had a Bill of Responsibilities toward one another, but that's another sermon for another time. So what do we mean when we talk about justice, when we talk about biblical justice? Well, in the Bible, the word is mishpat, M-I-S-P-A-T, and it means to bring wholeness or to make things right, to make things that were wrong right. It is connected, of course, to righteousness to the very imago day, to the right goodness and the good rightness that God breathed into us when he made us living souls. And justice is about our active effort to see that in the world. It's between people, it's among people, it's before people. Doing justice means putting things right or making things whole. Now sometimes justice can be reparative, in the sense that if I do something wrong, then I need to make it right. There is a guy in the New Testament that Jesus points out. He's a tax collector and he was cheating people. And he said, when he understood the gospel, he said, I'm going to make things right. That was justice. But more often than not in scripture, what we hear about is restorative justice. And that is to see the vulnerable and to do whatever must be done to make sure that they are restored. So we're hearing a lot about justice these days, right? It's not a new idea, though, because the enlightened society and woke culture would have you believe that a just society is a new and newly dreamed of future that we should be reaching for when, in fact, it is actually an echo from a heartbeat of God thump thumping from an eternity ago. Like so many enduring ideas, the world would have you consuming the fruit of a tree without acknowledging the true root of it. Life, liberty, and equality. Our father founded his creation on those things long before America's founding fathers linked them to a document. Before Steve Jobs decided that Apple products should be elegantly designed and usable right out of the box, the gospel was exactly that. Have you ever noticed that you can use the gospel immediately and it just gets usable and more usable and more usable the more you actually use it. And if you really need a manual for it, you have one that you can go into that shows you how to use it even better. Before time was space and before space was place, before the first person 
took the first breath on the first day, there was a father, son, and a spirit. Different, but living together. Different, but living as one. Different, but loving each other without competing for supremacy. Justice longs to see that. Justice fights for that. I love what Pete said about how he introduced himself at the central, at the center, um, the central Oregon Decency Project. He said, my name's Pete. I'm a pastor here in Bend, and I guess I'm invited to this meeting because my commitment to Christian faith has caused me to care deeply about the cause of justice in our world. My question for you today is this. What spaces are you being invited into so that you may care deeply to see that justice is done? What wrongs do you see? Whose cries do you hear? What's breaking your heart? What's making you angry? Or what are you ignoring because the cost of getting involved is too great? Justice, as God sees it, and he desires to see it through us, is not something to be understood purely at arm's length. James says that the religion that is acceptable to the Father involves looking after widows and orphans. Jesus said one day he will judge us by whether we fed the hungry, healed the sick, welcomed the stranger, visited the prisoner, and so on. Because biblical justice is active, which brings us to our text. There are lots of places where we see Jesus expressing the Father's heart for justice. Most often, he is advocating for the vulnerable. So in our text, what I want you to see is the scene. It is actually the day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's not like it happened, like when you see it in the book of Mark, you assume, I mean, in the book of Matthew, you assume that he goes into town and then he just starts flipping tables because he's just that guy. Now, I got to say, that's one of my favorite things about Jesus is to watch him flip a table because every once in a while, I want to flip a table. But that said, it's important to note that if you look at this through the eyes of the other gospel writers, you find that Jesus' triumphal entry happened, and then he goes outside of Jerusalem, and he leaves for a day. In fact, if you look at the account in Luke, Luke reveals that he is weeping over the city in that time, over the blindness of its people, over the judgment that is going to come upon them. And so then he comes back the next day and he's flipping tables. But the question that is, is most important to us right now is why is he upset? Why is he angry? And so he says in Mark 11, he says, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. We don't see that phrase for all nations in the book of Matthew. But he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And then it also says in Mark that he taught them. And that word is to literally give a discourse. So he's reminding them, and by extension us, he's reminding them of exactly who they are. And so it says that he taught them, and he surely taught them the fuller expression or understanding of that phrase, my father's house will be a house of prayer, because it's found in Isaiah 56, where God says to his people through the prophet, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice 
and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant to them to them I will give uh let me find it here <laughs> moving up on my scroll my scrolling here to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord will endure forever and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep his Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the new creation that Jesus brings in. This is God dwelling with his people, his people made up of all nations. So when we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, this is what that kingdom looks like. Everyone together, no one better than any other. The church is supposed to be a preview of that. Justice pursues that. And to that end, justice speaks up because the work of justice is public work. It's not enough to feel bad. We have to be devoted to doing good. Injustice actually thrives in silence and secrecy and fear. I recently saw a photo that was a part of Oregon history and it was this photo of a church and it was a church service, and you had the pastor standing behind the pulpit, and you had the people sitting there, but you had an entire, maybe two dozen or so, Ku Klux Klan men standing up in front of the church. And the pastor was introducing them, and above their heads, it said, Jesus saves. Now, it's easy to see how that would be offensive. But that's no less offensive than the modern day church refusing to call out systemic racism or remaining silent about abortion because that's a Republican talking point. We live in the tension of this culture the way Paul did. The Jews found him dangerous and they wanted to destroy him. The Romans saw him as a pest and they wanted to dismiss him. But Paul was able to speak to both sides and no one could destroy him and no one could dismiss him. And we're called to live in that tension, not choose a side and decide that we're going to pretend that the other side doesn't matter or that they're idiots or that they're wrong. Justice is public work, but it's not about you. Jesus said, my father's house will be a house of prayer. I want you to consider this when you're posting on your social media accounts, Facebook and Instagram and everywhere else and TikTok and whatever else you happen to be doing. I want you to consider 
Who are you actually asking people to pay attention to when you do it? Because when you repost what somebody posted, even if that other person is fighting for justice and they happen to support what your opinion happens to be, are you calling people to the attention of your father or are you calling people to the attention of you being right? Because I have a really good friend who is spending a lot of time just reposting what other people are saying. And the sad part about that is, is that we are called to be disciples out in the world. And Romans 12, 2 says that we are not to be conformed to the image of the world, but that we are to be transformed. But when we decide that all we're going to do is become mouthpieces for whatever ideology we happen to follow or whatever party or whatever agenda we happen to follow, then we are not making disciples. We ourselves have been made a disciple of someone else. So the pursuit of justice is not just about us speaking up, but the pursuit of justice is an invitation that we can't opt out of because justice owns up. Our father's business has to become our business. John 5, 19 says, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the son cannot do anything by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. And in Romans 15, Paul writes, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you, father, have fallen on me. What happens concerning the Father, Jesus takes very personally, and we should take it personally too. Antioch, this is not just your church. It is your Father's house. Racism and division dishonors our Father. Ignoring wrong dishonors him. Lying, vitriol, refusing to tell the truth dishonors him. Slander, meanness, and gossip dishonor him. And in this house, your father's house, when you see those things, you put a stop to it. And you put a stop to it because it is yours to do. Because your father's business is your business. And so in the pursuit of justice, you don't just speak up or own up. Justice stands up. Because when we do justice, we become the living proof that the kingdom is breaking in and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church, as God has designed it, and as Christ leads it, is an outward-facing community of believers who exist for the benefit of its non-members. Let that sink in for a second. The church, as God designed it, and as Christ leads it, is an outward-facing prophetic community of Jesus' followers that exists for the benefit of its non-members. We are here to give people who don't know Jesus a real-life glimpse at God dwelling with his new creation. In other words, we're supposed to be a credible example of the kingdom before it has fully come on earth. All people all nations, all stations, with God in the midst, all things put right, all things made whole. You know, it's interesting that almost every time we see the Father, the Son, or the Spirit angry or grieved, it is because we who call ourselves His are either lying about who He is 
or we're holding back the truth of who he is. If you go in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you see every time where the anger of the Lord is kindled, where the spirit is grieved or angry, where Jesus is flipping tables. That is what's happening. That the people who call themselves belonging to God are the ones who are blocking the view of God. So we look, when we look at our text in Matthew 21, 14 through 16, it says, Then the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear these, what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise? When Jesus cleared the temple, it was to make room for the lame, for the blind, for the marginalized, for the children, for the women, for the poor, and anybody else who needed to see him and needed a savior. It was a real life picture of Isaiah 56 where everybody who called upon the name of the Lord would be heard and would have a place in his house better than sons and daughters. The Pharisees had looked at them with their hands open and asked, can you afford to come in? But Jesus saw them and with his arms open asked a different question. Can you afford not to come in? Who do we need to make room for? Who is outside looking at us? Do we look like we're just good for a nice smile and a hello? Or do we look like we're inviting them in to be sons and daughters in our family with us? Justice work is public work. Our father's business is our business. And we are living proof that the kingdom is coming. The church is God's way of showing himself to the world. And it is the vehicle through which he chooses to reconcile the world to himself. We are his plan A. Now the world for all its promises and influence doesn't have a working plan. In Micah 6, 8, God tells his people, all I want you to do is to do justice and love mercy. That's simple enough, but it's not easy because the world wants to do justice or love mercy. And justice without mercy is just an exercise in heaping punishment upon punishment upon punishment. And yet mercy without justice excuses rather than forgives violence and ignores pain and injury. But we understand that the need for justice and mercy meet at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. But don't get it twisted. We are plan A, absolutely. But if we don't step in, there is a plan B. In Luke's account of this very story, the Pharisees command Jesus to rebuke the people who are hailing him as the Messiah. And he tells them, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The world is pretty noisy right now, isn't it? The rocks are crying out because we, the church, have been silent or selective in our speech for too long. We have one job, one job in word and in deed to tell a dying and lying world the truth about who God is in the person of Jesus. 
And we got to stop letting the rocks beat us to it. We had somebody during one of the protests early on in the, uh, right after George Floyd, somebody came and tagged our building with Black Lives Matter. And we started to have a discussion among the staff about what we were gonna do. We typically paint over our building when it gets tagged and our building gets tagged a lot. But we thought, what if we made that into art? Because the truth is black lives do matter. And so we created this mural and it preserved the actual tag that said black lives matter. But around it is all of this color but there are the names of a number of people who have died at the hands of police brutality or white supremacy. And we have the news come out and Huffington Post came out and everybody's doing stories and everybody wants to actually ask us about the protests that are going on downtown and what do we think of the looting and how do we feel about this and what's our position on what, what the Black Lives Matter movement is and we keep bringing them back to the same thing. Look at those names on that wall. Because at the end of every act of justice is a human being, is a person. At the end of every act of injustice is a person. At the end of everything we do are people. At the end of the things that we don't do are people. And so black lives do matter. It's something that the church should have said before the first slave stepped off the first ship. It's something that we should have said during Jim Crow and the Civil War, during lynchings and systems defining us as three-fifths of a person. It's something the church should have, sent, should have said before four little girls got blown up at a church before civil rights workers were murdered. It's something that we should have said before Tulsa, Oklahoma and Emmett Till. It's something the church should have said before dogs and hoses, before redlining and black codes, before white hoods covering faces of good Christian men, before Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland and Brianna, before mothers cried and so, so many rocks cried. We, the church, should have said black lives matter. And so, we at Imago Day. So we have our wall, and it is our gift to our community of truth in this moment. There are people attached to our justice. And so we commit to understanding and pursuing justice as we engage in civic life, not minimizing scripture's repeated call to seek justice and allow scripture to critique popular conceptions of justice in our culture. We do that by owning up, by standing up, by speaking up, so that as Jesus says in John 17, the world will look up and believe. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your heart is a heart of justice. We ask that your righteousness move through us in our acts of justice. We ask, Lord, that the world would see what justice really looks like through the church, that it's not fairness, that it's not revenge, that it's not demanding our rights, but rather it is putting things to rights. It is finding the vulnerable and caring for them. 
It is going out to the margins and loving people and bringing them into a family that has a name better than brothers and sisters. Father, I thank you for the church in this moment. I thank you for places like Antioch and Imago Day and Bridgetown and so many others that are working to have conversations that are gospel-shaped, not partisan, not right, not left, not religious, but gospel-shaped. And Father, I pray that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump and that your voice, your word, your desires would be seen and felt throughout the earth. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.